I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. When we think of Harriet Tubman or Franklin Roosevelt, for instance, we seldom think about their disability. We are even less likely to discuss the impact of their disability on their lives, politics, or activism. While disability analysis has by and large been missing from recollections of history, it would be a mistake to assume based on this omission, that people with disabilities did not play significant parts in the shaping of history. Making visible the stories and contributions of people with disabilities can help deepen our understanding of history. By re-examining history through the lens of disability, scholars can and do uncover rich insights into previously well-established events. Today, we discuss disability and history. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juwita Gupta. Today we've got a book review coming up, so you won't hear too much from me. We'll just dive right into this. We've uh, got, as I said, two co-authors here to talk about their new biography. Eugene T. Kingsley led an extraordinary life. Born in mid-19th century New York, in 1890, he was a railway brakeman in Montana when an accident left him a double amputee and politically radicalized. His socialist activism that followed took him north of the border where he was eventually considered by the government to be, quote, one of the most dangerous men in Canada, end quote. A new biography discusses the life and legacy of E.T. Kingsley. Ravi Malhotra and Benjamin Isaac are co-authors of Able to Lead, Disablement, Radicalism, and the Political Life of E.T. Kingsley. Ravi Malhotra, of course, is familiar to listeners of the program. He joins us today from Ottawa. Hello and welcome back. It's good to have you on the program. Thanks so much for having me. And Ben Isaac, joining us for the first time on The Pulse. Welcome. Joining us today from Victoria. How are you? Very good. Good to talk with you. Ravi, let's start out by asking about E.T. Kingsley. Who was he? E.T. Kingsley is someone who has been lost largely to history, but played a very big role in both California, where he was a political radical, and later he moved to British Columbia, where he led a political party, the Socialist Party of Canada, and was editor of their newspaper, the Western Clarion. And so we wanted to trace this history. When I came across him, I just thought, wow, this is a story that really has only been left to us in fragments. And so Mm -hmm. I was excited to have this opportunity to trace this uh, double amputee who radicalized both the House of Representatives and the House of Commons and the B.C. legislature. There's not many people disabled or able-bodied that could make that claim. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I was excited to be able to tell his story and how it connected to his disablement and how he understood his life. And Ben, what is it that drew you to the story of E.T. Kingsley? Why was he of interest to you? And why did the both of you, I guess, want to write a book about this now? 
I had been aware of Kingsley for some time, going back to my graduate uh, research, uh, looking at uh, uh, left-wing political movements in British Columbia in the early 20th century. Uh, quite some time later, uh, I was contacted by Ravi, who had um, uh, come across Kingsley's story and was really the driving force behind this project in terms of recognizing uh, Kingsley's contribution and um, understanding how important it was to uh, to undertake the research and share that contribution uh, broadly. And so mm-hmm. originally Ravi reached out regarding collaborating or requesting um, some, whether asking if I had any information relating to Kingsley. Uh, as a result of that initial dialogue, uh, we ultimately ended up collaborating on the book uh, and also um, got some generous support from the Government of Canada through the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, so had uh, the assistance of research assistants uh, and uh, collaborated. Yeah, the book is the result of that collaboration. Mm-hmm. And many years hard work. I know, Ravi, you've talked about it a lot. I know that the field of disability studies or critical disability studies is, relatively speaking, quite new in academia. But Ravi, when we think about the story of someone like E.T. Kingsley, how does that story help us expand um, critical disability studies? Or another way to put it, I guess, is does thinking the, about E.T. Kingsley's story through a critical disability lens maybe help to expand on some of the history that, that we might have encountered? I think it's fascinating because Kingsley was not someone who was a disability rights advocate in the modern sense. He was someone who lived with a disability, uh, very much like Franklin Roosevelt, not on the same level of fame, but it's, it's very much the case that I think that there's a similar, similarity there. And what, one of the most interesting things about Kingsley is that, if you could use the GLBT phrase, he, he was able to pass because a casual observer would not be able to tell that he was using artificial limbs. And so mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there is this key history of people that had disabilities that engaged in activism, and clearly there's a connection because he he was a farmer in his younger days, but he became disabled when he uh, was injured on the railways, and that clearly radicalized him. He became estranged from his family, and he he had this intense passion for what we call impossibleist socialism, this very radical form of socialism that I think was pitched, framed by his identity as an injured worker. So I thought all these issues together uh, were quite fascinating and, and speak to the uh, different ways he navigated his life. And it tells us something about how people with disabilities lived and their capacity to lead. Mm. And Ben, yet, despite the fact that Kingsley had clearly had such a fascinating life, he is somewhat forgotten by history. Why do you suppose that is? Uh, we, we explore that in the book. Um, a few reasons. Um, Kingsley's politics were decisively more radical than than all the, the mainstream political formations in Canada and North America today. He, he was uncompromising in his, in his belief that uh, capitalism had to be replaced with uh, socialist uh, relations uh, based on equality and cooperation rather than competition. Um, and Kingsley's the strategic approach to that was that that transition had to happen through democratic methods. So through the election uh, of candidates who embraced the socialist philosophy 
and essentially that capitalism would be legislated away. So in the sense of his advocacy for a radical economic platform, he was certainly outside the mainstream of both labor parties, but also capitalist parties, but also in terms of the tactics he advocated for in terms of uh, what could be called constitutional Marxism or democratic socialism, he was out of step uh, with uh, 20th century communism and other approaches uh, which advocated for the seizure of state power uh, through armed struggle. And so mm-hmm. he was marginalized um, both on the left uh, and also uh, well, uh, whole, all across the political spectrum. And so I think that's one reason he didn't fit easily into any of the established bodies of literature that examined uh, politics in 20th century uh, North America. Mm. And despite the marginalization, there are some interesting points of inquiry when we think about E.T. Kingsley, especially, Ravi, since you have a background in law, I would assume there's something to be said about investigating through E.T. Kingsley's story um, the state of labor law, especially as it pertains to injured workers or even the state of the union movement as to whether non-disabled workers were sympathetic to the plight of their co-workers with disabilities. What did you uncover? Well, that's a great question. So, One of the things that's really interesting is that Kingsley was often very dismissive of the role of unions. When he led the Socialist Party of Canada, they'd often talk about them in highly disparaging terms as commodity struggles. And I think that reflects the fact that after he became disabled in his early 30s, he essentially became a full-time activist and soapbox speaker on the streets. He was very marginalized, and so I think his relationship to uh, working-class identity was shaped by his disability. In, and, and I think that even though he didn't have a modern understanding of disability rights, I think that his skepticism about unions and the way he developed his socialist theories, in part at least, was shaped by this. But at the same time, the newspaper that he edited, the Western Clarion, covered a lot of industrial accidents, which we were able to uncover. You know, there's regular coverage of injuries. And of course, in those days, you know, uh, like Kingsley, there were many other people that were regularly maimed and killed on the railways and in mining. And uh, the work he did, I think a lot of it uh, was uh, indirectly covering that. And the Socialist Party of Canada uh, had elected members of the legislature, not Kingsley, and they, they worked for reforms in that area. Ben, you know, we've talked a little bit, all of us, about the Socialist Party of Canada, and it occurs to me that some some people might be thinking, what, wait, wait, we had a Socialist Party of Canada? I didn't even know about that. So I hope you don't mind if we go on a bit of a detour here. Maybe you could just fill us in on the Socialist Party of Canada and how influential it might have been uh, around the time that Kingsley was active. Yeah, so it... Uh... Technically, there is still a Socialist Party of Canada that exists today. It's it's not the same uh, organization that uh, Kingsley led. There were several mm-hmm. organizational permutations. Um, but at Kingsley's time, I think it could be described as a minor uh, but uh, influential force in uh, in the politics, particularly of British Columbia and Alberta. So in both of those provinces, the Socialist Party of Canada was successful in electing uh, members of the legislative assemblies in those provinces. Um, and it, uh, it, its influence was, was 
quite similar to the influence of, for example, of the Green Party of British Columbia uh, today, which currently has two members of the Legislative Assembly, and in the last legislature, it, it had three members. And um, mm. that the high point of the Socialist Party's support in, in British Columbia politics was electing three members to the legislature. So in the first two decades of the 20th century, and particularly in the decade leading up to the First World War, um, there was uh, substantial influence that this party was able to exercise, kind of leveraging its role in the legislature and its support in working class communities around the province uh, to get concessions uh, out of the uh, conservative uh, government uh, at the time. More broadly across Canada, the party's influence was a bit more marginal. So it did elect one member to the Alberta legislature from coal mining districts in the uh, southeast, uh, sort of southwest corner of the province. Uh, but it didn't elect uh, MLAs anywhere else. But it did establish locals uh, all across the country uh, as far as the Maritimes. Uh, and it definitely left its mark in shaping the evolution of, um, of labor and socialist parties uh, a few decades later. So even when we look at the breakthrough uh, for socialist candidates and labor candidates in Winnipeg and across Manitoba uh, after the Winnipeg general strike, I think that was a very clear reflection of the foundation that Kingsley and others in the Socialist Party had laid. Uh, similarly, after the First World War, uh, Ontario ha had a coalition government uh, of the United Farmers of Ontario uh, and Labour uh, members of the provincial parliament. Uh, and that reflected, uh, I think, the groundwork that Kingsley and other socialists had laid prior to the war. Uh, and in Alberta, uh, the, uh, the established parties were defeated uh, by the United Farmers uh, of Alberta, who governed for uh, about 15 years after the First World War. And it would be uh, more than half a century until the established parties uh, could, could win an election again in Alberta. So I think Kingsley and the Socialists were influential in breaking up the party system in Canada. Uh, it wasn't a permanent impact, but even today when we look at the New Democratic Party and progressive political movements in all provinces, uh, I think the foundation, the ideological foundation that was established by the Socialists and Kingsley in the early 20th century uh, continues to shape Canadian politics today. Before we go on break, Ravi, I have to ask you what I think is a burning question. It really sounds like Kingsley was in many ways a very progressive thinker, some would argue ahead of his time even, but it he he's a quite reluctant to actually come out and just say that he's a person with a disability or identify overtly in that way. Why do you suppose that was? Do you think there was shame attached, stigma attached? Was he concerned that uh, his political opponents might use his disability against him? What might have been going on there? That's a fascinating question. And it reminds me of a scholar that we talk about in the book named Slavishak, who's a scholar of amputees that talks about the concept of mechanical transcendence. And this is Slavishak's concept, the idea that on the one hand, there's shame involved in uh, stigma, but at the same time, even though these workers and disproportionately their workers were injured by technology, technology is what enables them to, uh, to go on. And so uh, in terms of Kingsley's self-understanding, Kingsley was extremely prolific and uh, in terms of writing, but he rarely commented about his own disability. He rarely commented about any of his personal life. We looked and looked and looked for traces uh, of 
personal relationships. And after he had his kids and left his family in the Midwest and moved uh, to California in the 1890s, he seems to have been single the rest of his life. So I think he's a he's a very self-effacing person. But w- one of the best portrayals is actually a fictional portrait we found of in a novel called The Gleaming Archway by a Brit, uh, British Columbian writer, A.M. Stephen. And if you go read it, you can find it in a library, The Gleaming Archway. You'll see a fictional portrayal of Kingsley. And, and that's a wonderful way, I think, to get another person's understanding. But unfortunately, the correspondence we have is very limited. Uh, mm-hmm. We have no diary. And so we don't have, we can only speculate. We don't have a self-understanding of what Kingsley thought. I'm Juwetha Gupta. My guests today are the co-authors of a new biography that deals with the life and legacy of political activist and double amputee E.T. Kingsley. And now we're going to ask Ravi Malhotra to do a bit of a reading because it's something I like to do on the program just to get a sense of the book and to get a sense of the person who was E.T. Kingsley. Ravi, take it away. Great. So this is from a fellow socialist at the very beginning of her book. His name's W.A. Pritchard. So he's commenting on Kingsley. This is sort of an epigraph to the book. And he says, E.T. Kingsley was a master on the platform. Simple, direct phrases, master of repartee. This one instance that comes to mind out of many, and one will be enough. Whenever an election took place at that time in Vancouver, the Vancouver local of the party organized a debate or meeting between candidates. Almost always the other parties agreed to this. The boys organized the meeting, ushered it, did everything, took a collection, and thus got some funds to carry on their work. This particular year I have in mind, there was a conservative who was named Cowan. I think the liberal was Joe Martin. And there was an independent running, besides E.T. Kingsley, for the Socialist Party. This independent was a young lawyer with a good shock of curly hair and As they drew lots as to the order of speech, this fellow drew the first one, and Kingsley was number two. Well, the meeting opened, and this boy took it upon himself to tell the crowd that he would not attempt to deal with questions of history and economics and these deep matters. I leave that, he said, to my bald-headed friend. Well, the old man, and he got up, he had artificial legs. They'd been cut off on the railroad on this side of the line, and he would stand holding onto a chair, and he said... Ladies and gentlemen, I've addressed hundreds of meetings on this side of the line and the other side of the line, and I've never found it necessary to refer to the physical characteristics of any of my opponents. But he says, this young squirt has taken it upon himself to make reference to my baldness, which is very obvious. I want to tell him that there are two kinds of baldness, bald on the outside, and he points to his head. Then he pointed to the fella and said, and bald on the inside. You can see my kind of baldness every time I take off my hat. His kind of baldness is evident every time he opens his mouth. That was old (laughs) Kingsley, and I could tell you all kinds of stories about him. That's how we opened the book with this epigraph from uh, Pritchard, his fellow One of the One of the good things about working in radio is you learn the act of of laughing without actually making a a, a noise. Um, When I read that in the book, my eyes were streaming. It was such a funny anecdote, and he's clearly very witty. Uh, Ben, you know, he does, as we learn from this anecdote, eventually Kingsley does end up in Canada. And I think a number of us might have might have questions about how um, and in what way Canada's immigration system might have shaped uh, Kingsley's experience. They were, as you know, at the time, very particular about accepting immigrants with disabilities. How did Kingsley get around that? Um, 
Yeah, I'll uh, provide a, a brief response. Uh, Ravi, um, I will also see if Ravi has anything to add. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it's an area of passion for him, and um, uh, he did extensive research relating to the immigration law of Canada at the time and how it uh, discriminated against people with disabilities uh, and as well as political radicals. Um, so Canada's immigration system was not yet formalized. It had sort of uh, emerged out of uh, British law uh, in the 1800s, and there was some changes underway to Canada's Immigration Act uh, right at the moment that Kingsley uh, was recruited. He he was actually hired on a short-term, two-month contract to come to British Columbia uh, to give speeches on Vancouver Island uh, on behalf of socialist coal miners. It's actually their organizing work before they had even formed uh, the Socialist Party of Canada, um, and uh, and his involvement directly led to the formation of the party. Uh, but at the time, Kingsley was in um, Seattle, Washington, uh, very close to Vancouver Island, uh, working with the socialist movement in that part of the United States. Um, and he sort of was able to just slide into British Columbia uh, before some more onerous immigration uh, regulations kicked in. The supporting legislation had actually already been approved by uh, Parliament uh, and by the Governor General, but uh, they hadn't yet been implemented. And so he, he was able to avoid any kind of a rigorous medical inspection uh, that may have uh, resulted in him being uh, disqualified uh, on grounds of his impairment. Uh, and he also doesn't appear to have undergone any type of uh, rigorous scrutiny as to his political beliefs or activities or the fact that he had been arrested uh, a few years earlier in San Francisco for giving speeches on street corners. And so he basically was able to uh, come into Canada, as appears, with no interference uh, because of the fairly underdeveloped nature uh, of national security and border controls at that time, at least for individuals who, uh, I guess, for uh, individuals of European uh, extraction uh, mm-hmm. who, who didn't present any obvious physical impairments. Uh, so he came by steamship from Seattle to Victoria. Uh, his arrival was actually announced in the in the local newspaper in Victoria. It, that may have reflected his stature as a political figure. It may have reflected the just the journalistic conventions at the time that there was sort of these comings and goings of people, ships, passengers, reports. So once he arrived, he he stayed. Um, the, the first time his immigration status seemed to come up in our sources was when he first sought elected office in Canada in the 1907 uh, British Columbia provincial election. And at the time, uh, under the election laws in B.C., you had to have been naturalized as a Canadian citizen, which is somewhat different than the process now of becoming a Canadian citizen, but actually to be naturalized as a British subject. And that involved going to the county court and confirming that you had met the residency requirements. And it appears that Kingsley did that at the time in order to be added to the elector uh, rolls and then to have his nomination as a candidate confirmed because there was a two or three week period where his candidacy was thrown into doubt. Uh, but then he, by election day, he was on the ballot. He didn't win that election, but it appears that he had resolved the naturalization issue. Ravi, we just got a few minutes left. In your view, what is Kingsley's lasting contribution and his legacy? I think that it's the idea that you can change the world. We didn't write this book 
to articulate a specific version of impossible socialism. But the fact that he had passion, that he was in an organization that he led and was a disabled man, and their slogan was no compromise, no political trading, all of these together. Uh, and as a legal scholar, uh, we haven't talked about it, but we do spend time in the book talking about his litigation against Northern Pacific uh, for his injuries. So all these things together, I think, make for a person that was enormously principled. You may or may not find his economic suggestions practical, but he, he was someone who wanted to change the world, like Helen Keller. Uh, and, and I think that's something that's, uh, that's admirable. That's really well said. And you're right, we didn't get to talk about most of what we'd like to talk about today. But just as we go, uh, how do we get a hold of your book, Ravi? And I think you've got a webinar coming up as well to promote the book. What can you tell us about that? Oh, there is going to be uh, a book launch. So 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on June 15th. You can just go to the UBC Press website and you need to register, but it's free and open to all anywhere in the world. Excellent. Ravi and Ben, thank you very much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Ravi Malhotra and Ben Isett are the co-authors of Able to Lead, Disablement, Radicalism, and the Political Life of E.T. Kingsley, published by UBC Press. For the podcast, head on over to your favorite podcast platform or go to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Ravi Malhotra and Ben Isaac for being my guests on the program today. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day.